0: The most important thing is to validate. That doesn't mean you have to tell them that they're right, but you validate their concerns. Instead of trying to convince them and trying to give them information, it's all about the feelings, not about the facts.
1: Hi, I'm Bobby, a caregiver for my father-in-law Roger for seven years. I am now a certified caregiving consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, and the author of two books for caregivers. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. My co-host and husband Mike is unable to join us today, but he will be back with me as soon as possible. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support, and maybe even a laugh or two, which we all know is the best medicine. Communicating with my father-in-law, Roger, was often a challenge. Although he spoke several languages, there were many times we didn't communicate as well as we might have. Some of that was language-based, and some of it was cultural, as he was still very much influenced by the way things were done years ago in Italy including how a woman is perceived. Once, when frustrated with me, he told me that in Italy, women are considered second-class citizens. I told him he didn't live there anymore, and he was in my house now. Many people new to caring for someone with one of the many forms of dementia don't understand dementia behavior or how they respond to them can increase the stress level for them and the person in care. And that brings me to today's guest an expert on brain health, clear communication, cognitive and swallowing issues in the adult and geriatric population in the Washington DC metro area. Her firm SpeakSkill brings together linguistics, cultural and medical expertise to provide training and therapy in comprehensive communication skills. Please welcome Susan Rannick. Susan, thank you so much for being with us today. Bobby, thank you for your kind invitation. I see it all the time and I hear it on so many of the social media sites dealing with caregivers for people with dementia. How communication between the two, how what caregivers say to the person with dementia can really make things worse for both of them.
0: Absolutely, communication is difficult in and of itself. When you add dementia or cognitive shift to the mix, it becomes even more complex. But what people don't appreciate generically is that it's not ever what you say it's what the other person understands that matters and our goal as speakers or senders of the message is to do we the best that we can to ensure that the receiver understands it as we intend
1: wow you know that says so much right there and i'm thinking about talking to my husband in our different ways of, of communicating and how often he'll say something that strikes me in a way he had no intention Mm -hmm. and vice versa. We think we're clearly communicating when we're not. I, I have to confess,
0: I am also a linguist in addition to being a speech language pathologist. And I had the privilege of working with, well, being in Deborah Tannen's very first class. You may be familiar with Deborah Tannen long before Venus and Mars. She wrote a book on men and women you just don't understand. We assume so much, but we're not in the other person's head.
1: I have to give my credit. He, when After we were first married, and we've been married for 34 years, one of the first things that he did was get a copy of that book. And he really does try. I mean, he, he's, a, he's amazing. But again, he'll say something to me. And there's part of it still in his head where he's coming from. And I don't have that piece of information. Therefore, I don't, I don't get what he's trying to say in the way that he thought I should. Been there, done that. We've all been there and done that. <laughs> uh,
0: it, it, it can be, uh, Communication is one of the most difficult skill sets out there. It's the, the soft skills that the ability to communicate is the primary criteria for admission to the universities now. I know that at Stanford, that was the biggest determinant, the person's ability to express themselves. It's not easy. It's not easy, it's an ongoing challenge. And when you're dealing with somebody who's experiencing cognitive shift, it becomes even more challenging because we communicate so much before we even open our mouths. People judge. The first thing, they're gonna look at how you look. Then they're gonna look at what you do. They're gonna look at the speed with which you do what you do. Your expressions, your gestures, and that's before you even get to the words. And this is critical when you're dealing with somebody who has a challenger in your your father-in-law's case. The fact that he, there, the, there was the gender, there was the culture, the age difference, this all comes into play. And the issue is, like it or not, people judge. Everybody judges. It's who and how we are. It's hardwired. It's our fight or flight. This is how we determine what's safe and what isn't. And when people are dealing, are coping and living with a cognitive shift. The filters aren't the same as ours, as the typical filter. And the memory isn't there, so they don't have those resources on which to draw.
1: One of the things that that I do, and as somebody who is naturally an introvert, I watch people, I watch people a lot. And when somebody is talking to me, I look at their body posture in their, their facial expression and how they, where they put their arms. I'm interpreting this. But sometimes those cues, I don't get them right. Say, for instance, if somebody has their arms crossed and I'm thinking they're being closed off and defensive, that's just the way they feel comfortable holding their arms. But when we're dealing with somebody with dementia, their body language can tell us a lot.
0: All right, you are. Behavior is communication especially when it comes to people who are living with cognitive challenges. We have to watch very carefully what people don't say, but what they communicate with their movements. We talk whenever anybody is agitated or they they appear to be aggressive, there's always a reason for that behavior. The challenge and the task and the mission is to understand why they're doing what they're doing. It's not easy. It's not easy for professionals, let alone for the the uninitiated who are serving as caregivers unintendedly. It, It just happened. These are very often crisis situations. It's not like welcoming a baby, an infant into your home, you have at least nine months to prepare for that. But when it comes to caregiving, it's generally a crisis situation. Learn as you go. Things have changed tremendously. In the, well, they change daily, but in the last 10, 20 years, these resources weren't available. People were truly
1: winging it. And when you think about the relationships that you have with the people that are dealing with dementia either maybe a spouse you've been married for a number of years or a parent that you've known all of your life you have certain expectations of them and they look pretty much the same so that disconnect between what we knew and what we see and what's actually going on is extremely confusing and frustrating for caregivers like we who thought okay, dad's coming to live with us, it'll be difficult now and then, but we've got this having no idea what it was going to be like.
0: I I couldn't agree with you more. And as I've been, as you know, I'm a clinician. I'm in the clinical field. I've been in the clinical field for over 25 years. I've been in the communication field for over 50 years, and I have been a caregiver. And I can tell you, it doesn't matter. And I've spoken with specialists, physicians, I've spoken with many, many healthcare professionals, and we concur, it all changes in the first person. Because no matter how good you think you are, you are emotionally attached and you don't have that objectivity that others have. It can be right in front of you and you miss it.
1: Yeah, I, I hear that sometimes from people who work professionally in, in the care world, who, who work in the care homes, and they do a beautiful job there. But when it comes to their own family member, it's entirely different. There was a wonderful TED
0: Talk by a woman whose name escapes me. She was a journalist. But she draws the line too. she said, it's very important to understand that denial and hope are not the same thing. And people shouldn't be denied hope. It's a, a very important distinguishing feature. And I would encourage, it, it, if you look under TED Talks, under hope and denial, hope versus denial, a lot of times family members, I don't want to say accused, but they'll say that they're in denial. They don't know what they don't know. And they don't know that they don't know it. It's, it's very, very difficult. And trying to reach that loved one. I talk about communication as an exchange of information. But when you're dealing with someone who's experiencing a cognitive shift, call it dementia. The new term now, I guess, is major neurocognitive disorder. That sounds so ominous. But (laughs) when you're dealing, isn't it? The the words alone can be frightening. But when you're dealing with somebody with a cognitive shift, it's important, and I don't think they emphasize this enough. Anybody who has any form of dementia whatever kind and people with different kinds are going to behave differently some will have behavioral issues some will have more pronounced memory issues they they behave differently and they can have mixed dementias as as well well yes they will always have difficulty anyone who has any type of a dementia will have difficulty with memory difficulty with language not just verbal expression but also understanding which we don't emphasize enough people think that just because they say it that makes it so but the people have the same the people who are dealing with dementia and with a cognitive shift are having the same difficulty finding the words to understand what you say to them as they are finding the words to express themselves
1: well that that's that's something that i don't think most of us think about that we believe that we're clearly communicating but they're not perceiving it in the same in the way that they did in the past. Um, I'd like to mention something that comes up a a great deal with people with dementia when they start talking about they want to go home. I often tell people it's not necessarily a place, it could be a feeling that they want to feel safe, they want to feel comforted. Um, As an adult I've had a number of challenges in my life and I'm not I don't have dementia but there are moments when I still want my mom when I want to go back to where I wasn't the decision maker anymore and somebody else was making dinner for me and I can see where somebody with dementia would have that feeling and say that they want to go home but very often the response is well you are home the most important thing when when people are
0: experiencing and, and expressing those needs is to validate. That doesn't mean you have to tell them that they're right. You just say, yeah, home is good, isn't it? Tell me about home and you redirect, but you validate their concerns. And instead of trying to convince them and trying to give them information, you want you want to, it's all about the feelings, not about the facts. That's why when people, are concerned about how to, how to communicate with people, I always say, try the smile, get at an eye level. First of all, sit down with them. If they're sitting in a wheelchair, they're looking at you, their, their field of vision is 31 inches from the floor. They're probably looking at your navel. Get on their level and get in front of them because they're going to have visual challenges. See if they will accept touch. Offer a hand, don't take, don't assume anything and try to communicate on the feeling level with the sensory, the sound. That's why music is so soothing because people don't have to worry about the words. They don't, and those words may come automatically. That's another thing people don't realize that language is on, this is an oversimplification but historically, and we'll just leave it this, this way because there's so much material in this. But language is generally they say on the left side of the brain, but on the right side of the brain, you have, you have automatic behavior you have music, you have rhythm, you have prayer you have social conversation. So even though someone says to you, Oh, how nice to meet you. They don't have to put a lot of thought into that, any more than they would say bless you, if you sneeze, or come in if somebody knocks. it's important to draw on that social conversation, to draw on the music, to draw on the things that come automatically for the person. As I say, that's why, why music is so important. I remember, and I tell this story because I think stories are so revealing. There was the woman who had a stroke. She had dementia and she was nonverbal. She was in a wheelchair living in, a, in an assisted living community, and her daughters used to come in, and they'd shop here and there, and they were always redecorating and buying new things, and in and a flash and out in a flash like two tornadoes discussing what they were doing and all the things they had bought, and this woman just nodded and smiled because she loved them. They were her daughters, but I often thought of how lovely it would have been if they would just come in and sit down with her and say, hi, mom and hug her and kiss her and take one bag and open it with a bottle of cream and say, look, this is blue hyacinth. Remember your favorite fragrance, smell. May I put some on your hands and just spend a few moments doing that massage and just being one with. Martin Buber, uh, I don't know if you know Martin Buber, he was a philosopher. He used to talk about the difference between communication and communion. When you're dealing with somebody who's having those language challenges, it's so important to be in communion with them. It's something that you can only do at a very special level. Uh, Partners, spouses, children with parents, only people who really know that person really well can unite with them. And that's why I emphasize the importance of communion over communication
1: i'd like to go back a little bit to where you were talking about putting the the cream on 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 mom's hand and mentioning the scent because scent brings back so many memories um i grew up in it in a town in in new york state and there was there was a, a community park there that um I used to, my mom used to take me there as a very small child, and I spent a lot of time there as a teenager. There was a, a scent to the, the ground, the clay that was there on the ground that still lives in my brain um, whenever I think of that place. And we happened to go by there a few years ago, and it had been paved over, and I was so disappointed. Mm -hmm. But if I was anywhere where I was able to smell that scent, I would be right back in that park. So I would imagine that when mom has that cream on her, that was her favorite scent, perhaps she would start talking about memories that were associated with that.
0: You you never know. There was another woman. I'll give you another example. I had stopped off on a sunday afternoon at this community where i worked and i had my two dogs with me english springers one was very intrepid she got into everything this woman was asleep in her wheelchair she hadn't spoken hadn't said anything in a number of years and my little dog went over and poked his muzzle, her muzzle under the wheelchair arm and pushed its nose up into her face and the woman was startled and awakened and said in the in the clearest English, she said, oh, my, isn't she adorable? That was the first time that woman ever spoke and the last time they ever recall her speaking. And my greatest regret, I was a a new clinician. My greatest regret is that I didn't lobby for them to incorporate pet care. This goes back 20 Mm -hmm. years, 25 years Mm -hmm. ago. If they had incorporated pet care, into her daily plan of care because emotion people if there's if there're words in their in their soul it will come out when you touch the emotion when they're angry or they're very very happy another woman was nonverbal post stroke and had very few words till her daughter rolled her into a common area on one of the holidays and again It was the only phrase she ever said clearly and strongly, but she let it be known, I do not want to be here. Mm -hmm. But you don't always want to keep people at that tenor of negativity. You don't want to make them unhappy. But if instead you can play to the emotion and what makes them happy, the soft touch, the beautiful smell, the taste, I encourage people to be
1: open to new ways of communicating. Um, I'm going to ask you here for a tip, and if it puts you on the spot, I apologize. But, you know, you mentioned that very clearly, I don't want to be here. We know that the person doesn't have any choice at that point of being where they are. How do I respond to that?
0: Okay, let me just back up a second. With
1: regard to I don't want to be here, I don't know
0: that she was talking about the community itself, I think she did not appreciate being rolled into the public area, the common area. Mm -hmm. I think she wanted the solitude of her room. You just acknowledge and say, where would you like to go? Shall we take a walk? And say, let me find some place that you like more. At least let them know that you acknowledging their displeasure and you're making every effort to accommodate. Validation is the single most important thing. When people are expressing displeasure, nothing is more disconcerting, especially if you haven't got your words, than somebody being dismissive of your needs, your discomfort, your displeasure. Oh, it's gonna be fine, don't worry about it, mom. Oh, dad, it's gonna be just fine. You don't wanna talk to them like that. You don't wanna be here okay, let's find some place where you're happier. And again, try music, try something that will bring pleasure to that person.
1: Um, Absolutely. You know, I, I don't like to trivialize an adult with dementia by treating them or suggesting that they're children, but that kind of behavior is communication it reminds me of a child having a tantrum when they don't have the words to say I'm cold or I'm hungry or I'm wet I'm uncomfortable so what they do is they cry they kick their feet they lash out that happens with adults with dementia and then where they're labeled as aggressive and Mm -hmm. that combative and combative and they're drugged when if we understand how to read the communication that's in that behavior, we can avoid that. And and that's why it's so important to me to let people know, as you said, it's not the words, but it's what how they perceive them.
0: Mm-hmm. What they understand. And the other thing is that there is no handbook for this. There isn't a glossary or a dictionary, if this do that, this means that. I tell people when I do training, that dementia is a journey, not a destination. Each and every moment is a moment of discovery. But I do believe, and I maintain, regardless of the person, regardless of the needs, be it dementia, be it, be it whatever the diagnosis, that we can make things better whatever the stage, the progression of the disease. And when I say we as clinicians, our job is to open the door and show family members and those who live with, love, care for, care about someone who's dealing with these life altering diagnoses. Our job is to open the door and show them how they can be better communicators and reach the soul of the person. That's our responsibility.
1: And, and that's a big one that's growing in, in need every single day. So I understand that you do training. And as we know, there's new people coming into this every single day. I'm new to this. Mom has to come and live with me. She can't be on her own anymore. How do I start learning how to cue into what her behavior is trying to tell me?
0: I would say get up every morning and smile. Test your smiler. See how well it works, okay? Because that is a universal language. And you come in in the morning and forget the fear and the trepidation and the concern. Go out with your heart forward. Meet that person on the eye level and say, good morning, how are you today? All right? and. That can condition how they respond, how they act or interact, and if they're not happy, as you said, not to infantilize anybody, but if they're irritable, you don't know what's wrong with the individual. I remember my mother telling me she used to think that old people were crabby people. She understood that people who don't feel well can be irritable. There might be some physical displeasure, we don't know. We're not in their bodies. We don't know what's going on. We can only do the best we can. It's important to learn how to breathe, to calm yourself if you're going to care for somebody else. It's important to learn how to step away and accept the fact that you are not always going to get it right. And sometimes you're going to have to step away. And that's Ab- okay.
1: Absolutely. That, that very definition is why I ended up writing my first book, Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver, um, because I I think I made every mistake a caregiver can make, um, including feeling that I should always have the answer.
0: And did you learn from it? In my book, I make reference to that. I call it universal exoneration. I dedicated this book to my mother and i used to it used to go like this i'd say oh no and she'd say did you make a mistake and i'd say oh did i ever not necessarily with regard she never lived to see me get my degree as a speech pathologist but she knew the passion within but whenever i was having whatever the issue and i was always calling her for something she'd say did you make a mistake and i'd go oh yeah and she said did you learn from it exactly and I'd say, oh yeah and she'd say then take your lesson and move on that's what life is all about.
1: And, and, and that's, that's very similar to what I try to teach people when it has to deal with caregiver guilt. There, is, there are so many articles and so many people talk about how to deal with caregiver guilt and how to avoid it, but I don't think it's avoidable. I think because we're what I call creative problem solving on the run, mm-hmm. it's not always going to work. So if, if it didn't work and you feel guilty today, Take a few minutes, feel the emotion, and move on and do the best you can the next day. I did learn from it. I now know you don't have to get it right every time to do what's best for the person in your care.
0: And and that's not just the caregivers, that's the medical professionals as well. The physicians, the nurses, the clinicians, the therapists, we're all out there doing the best we can. We're doing what we feel is right in the best interest of the person. There's a lot of discussion on this too as what is the best interest of the person uh, that's not what we're going to go into here but when i said that i believe that every and i do believe this every person can be helped if you can by helped, i don't mean return to prior level of function if you can make that person feel a little bit better even if for only a moment if you can make them smile if you can do any of those things That's better, that constitutes better. So the target each day should be for a smile, not laughter and joy all day long, would if you could, (laughs) would be nice if you could. But if you can smile, if you can share a laugh together, if you can get them to enjoy the fragrance of a flower, cream, a beverage, music, something that you share together, it's a win-win. Absolutely,
1: Susan, I think you have you have definitely put out some wonderful information for our listeners. Um, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time out. of your very busy schedule to be with us today. Again, thank you so much for being here. I have a, written down a couple of takeaways from, from our conversation. Uh, the first one was, um, it's not what you say, it's how the other person perceives it. And so we want to make sure that we hear their response to what we're saying and the other thing was we communicate before we even open our mouths and if we approach somebody with a smile as you're recommending um, that's going to put us off on a positive foot right from the beginning and i appreciate you're saying it's not being happy all day long (laughs) it's starting with something positive and going from there um I, i once posted a picture of uh, somebody with a very stern face and uh, on social media and said, if you walk into your loved one's room and they, sh- they have this look on their face, look at them smile and do a silly dance. It may not make them feel better, but it might make you feel better. And a number of people said, wow, I'm gonna try that. So I think that kind of fits in with what you were what you were sharing today. And again, thank you so much. It's all about the feeling, not about the facts. Exactly, all about
0: the feelings, not about the facts. And they're not always going to understand, they're not always going to hear, but they will show you what they're thinking. So watch, never before has there been greater appreciation for the phrase, watch what they say.
1: And that's something I'm gonna take away for sure. Again, thank you, Susan, for being with us today. You can find more information about Susan and SpeakSkill on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes or Roger That Facebook page, and post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. If you would like your identity to remain private, you can direct message your question on Facebook and we will answer. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that dot show.